you're not doing the organization any justice if you're constantly trying to spin the news so that it sounds better going up because you're not protecting your job. From Exabeam, this is the new CISO, a show about the people who lead IT security teams, the challenges they face, and how they overcome them. If you like what you hear, please rate, review, and subscribe to hear our new episodes first. I'm Steve Moore, and today I speak with Chuck McCarrion, CISO PACAR, and Sean Murphy, CISO of BECU. We talk about the value of professional relationships early in your career, how an internal cybersecurity risk council can manage expectations and better prepare your organization, why sugarcoating security reporting hurts the business, and why we should be realistic about the strengths of the adversary. Having strong working relationships with other business partners can strengthen the culture of security. But for that to work, you have to understand that security is not monolithic. Allow the security team room to breathe and accept even the best programs are still vulnerable. Today we have a special show for you on the new CISO. I'm joined by two guests, Chuck and Sean, who I will let introduce themselves here. They know one another, they're, they're friends, and that will come through in our discussion. So a little bit different format today, but uh, twice the interesting content. I want to start, Chuck, if you would, introduce yourself to the uninitiated. Who are you? Sure. Uh, hi, everybody. My name is Chuck Markarian. I am the Chief Information Security Officer at a company called PACAR. PACAR makes uh, Kenworth, Peterbilt trucks, and Doth trucks uh, over in the Netherlands. We're about a $26 billion company, and I've been with the company uh, roughly 16 years now, always in a security role, really been in the acting CISO role for about the past 10 years, titled as such for about the last four to five years. Thank you, Chuck. And on to you, Sean. Who are you? It's funny, uh, this isn't the first time I've used this line, but uh, I'm Sean Murphy, and I, I am here today to hear what Chuck has to say. <laughs> so uh, I've used that at other seminars that we've uh, been together, uh, and uh, and honestly, it is, it's a true statement more than a joke. Uh, it'll be fun to, to partner with Chuck again on some, uh, some interesting topics. I am uh, the CISO at uh, BECU. We're the third largest credit union in the nation um, here in the Seattle uh, Washington is our field of membership, um, and uh, I've been in that role for about two years. And we, as such, you know, do the normal complement of risk management, disaster recovery, business continuity, identity access management, data protection, security operations center, architecture, um, platform engineering, and so forth. Again, I've been there about two years. I came out of the healthcare information security space. Was in the Air Force for 21 years. Retired. I did medical device security, then went on to the private sector information security, um, but uh, jumped out into the financial services sector a couple of years ago and uh, just uh, enjoying every day. Thank you for that, Sean. But before I jump back up to Chuck, so you were Medical Services Corps? Yes, I was. And I was Medical Service Corps uh, healthcare administrator uh, and got into uh, information security through uh, the medical device angle. We were attaching teleradiology, digital radiology systems to the uh, Warfighters Network back in, oh, geez, 2001, 2, 3, 4. 
that time frame. And it, it really wasn't a thing in healthcare to have information security built into, uh, especially medical devices, which, you know, are very special purpose computing systems. Absolutely. That, that's kind of a rare bit of background on that. And I, I kind of wondered, but uh, I, did, I didn't mean to ask you that in our earlier conversations, but uh, we'll get into that and uh, some of the work you did in insurance before too. We have some similarities there, but I want to go back up to, uh, to Chuck. And the way we start most of these shows is asking advice that we would give to the, the younger self. And I usually think of that more when you're starting your career, but you know, Chuck, you had a perspective uh, on that, just on relationship management and establishment of them. What's your take on on that, and and why is that sort of the core advice you give? Yeah, one of the challenges I think that that I had early on was if you get to know me, it may not come across this way, but I am a complete introvert. That's just who I am. <laughs> I have had to learn over time to kind of be comfortable reaching out and developing relationships even just so far as to go at an event and just introducing myself to somebody. I think that's what I did with Sean and how we came to meet. But if I go back and and say what, or if I look back and say, what would I do differently? I would start to learn how to do that sooner. Those relationships that you can develop with your peers, to me, that's been super critical. And I always laugh when Sean says he wants to hear what I have to speak. I look at Sean and, and others that I've met as my mentors. They have helped me in this field to grow and develop. Know that if I ever have an issue going on, that I can reach out to any one of those folks like Sean and have a very kind of off the record discussion, share what he's had or what he's experienced. Is he seeing what we're seeing right now where he's at and really just learn from them? So those relationships have been key for me to be successful in my role. And it just took me a while, I think, to get over that that introverted nature that I have and just to get comfortable with walking up to people and making those relationships and developing them and then nurturing them. Also the same with the executives of the company. Sometimes we think those guys are a little bit off limits, but they can't be. You need to develop those relationships. You need to get them to know who you are, the program you're developing around security, why it's important to them, so that when there is an event that happens, and believe me, there will be events, you already have those relationships established. You have a level of trust with them established, and you know how to communicate with them. To me, that's probably the biggest thing that I can tell you if I was starting over in my career, I would learn how to do that sooner and I'd really push hard to get those relationships in place. I heard two things there, two pieces that are equally important. The first might be a little more, actually. So I can remember going back when I was excited about information security before I even worked in InfoSec and going to conferences and I noticed, and these are more technical. This is back a day or two. I've got a lot of gray hair these days. So it's a a while ago. And it was either there, I felt like either there was kind of clicky groups that knew one another and they were all very happy together and they were having a good time. And it was sort of a little bit of a party. And then there was for every one person that fell into that category, there was maybe 20 that seemed like they were alone or lonely, maybe even. And I was one of those. I didn't know anybody. And one of the best things I did is is help start a local security group that we would meet. And that allowed us to know someone when we went even out of state to a security event. Back then, the big one to go to was ShmooCon and then later on DerbyCon. Then we had friends. In fact, we would road trip. We would rent a minivan and go together. And so that's the, the more junior level social element. How did you get 
So my point of sharing that is it's so valuable to have that even as a junior level person or mid-level. What was the trigger for you that you're like, hey, I know I'm an introvert. This isn't comfortable, but I'm going to go say hi. Sean's over looking cool in the corner somewhere and you're going to go say hi to cool Sean. What drove that? What advice do you have for the person who's not sure of themselves in that regard? The first couple of times you do it, you're like, oh, are they going to, are they going to even want me to say hi? Are they going to ignore me? Are they going to give me that courtesy? Oh yeah, nice to meet you, whatever. And go back to their conversation. The biggest thing I can say is just to take that first step and to get over it and do it. You know, if, if I'd walked up to Sean and he was like, buzz off, I, you know, yeah, I would have <laughs> took it. It would have been hard, but that's not what he was. He was like, oh, hey, how's it going? You know, and we talked, we got to know each other. And we've really, we've developed a friendship. I mean, him and his wife have I, and my wife have shared meals together. Um, so we've developed a really good friendship from that. But it takes just getting over your fear, reaching out. And I will tell you, you know, 95% of the time, the person you're reaching out to is just as happy about meeting you as you are meeting them. So don't let fear stop you from making that, that first handshake and just introducing yourself to people look around the room when you're at those conventions and things. And like you said, look for somebody who might be standing in the corner and, and not who's like an, like you, maybe introverted and afraid to say hi and start there. I almost can guarantee you it's going to be a friendly conversation and then just work your way up and then work your way into the bigger group where you see four or five people standing there and <clears throat> maybe hear something that they're saying and introduce yourself and who you are and make a comment about the discussion. And then you, you start to become part of that group. Yeah, it's very, very important. It will, and and thank you for using my rap, my rap handle, uh, Cool Sean. Uh, it's uh, with with a K, by the way. <laughs> as, as Chuck was talking about that, you know, it's you know the all of that is very true about getting out of your comfort zone and and, and reaching out and, and networking. Uh, Steve, as, as you mentioned, to you know, the only ad I would say is um, I have found the value in that is is also in the fact that there are so few people that really understand what we do and and what we go through on a daily basis your families aren't going to necessarily understand they 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 love you and they want to try to empathize but nine times out of ten their eyes glaze over and they are not really sure what it is you're talking about your friends at work your colleagues at work you know they might have some empathy but their business the their nature of what they do is is a little different you certainly can't lament uh, to your staff because you have to, you have to be in that leadership role uh, you know, the vendor community, you know, certainly likes to hear you talk, but, uh, you know, they're, they're not always the best ears to listen. And so when you're, you're piling around with fellow CISOs and you're, you know, you're able to kind of have those, uh, those conversations that, you know, it's almost shorthand because you kind of know exactly whatever, you know, you're operational, you know, what's going on, um, you know, you've been there. And it is, it is nice to think that we collaborate and we share and we all get better for doing so. So, but I, I, I would, I would underscore the importance of what Chuck said. Point like your family members, I'll be on a phone call. My wife might be listening in the background. I'll get off the call and she'll look at me and she goes, I have no idea what language you were just <laughs> speaking because everything is three letter acronyms, et cetera, et cetera. Right. But I can have that conversation with Sean and we know exactly what we're talking about. It's easy to relate. So just underscoring that having that community is important. I think years ago, it was more difficult to find a community. There wasn't as many local meetups and things. And now there's an abundance of, of these events. And, and everything we've talked about so far has been sort of in person. So there's these hallway discussions that sort of happen uh, before and after, you know, in the main lecture hall, and you're able to meet folks. How do you bridge that? So the person listening, uh, maybe not even a CISO, maybe the team lead or the director, 
that we're in a virtual world right now more than we've ever been and they feel just as alone or they feel like they should network more or there's things they're struggling with and don't have a support network they don't have the friends maybe they're new i know this is a tough question but do either of you i'll, I'll start with with sean any ideas there on how to sort of bridge this virtually to kind of get that connection when you're feeling a little um uh less able to connect yeah it's a, it's a great question and you're right it is it is difficult um Probably the quickest answer that I have is professional affiliation. And, you know, with the different groups that are not only locally available, that are affiliated around information security or, or even auditing or, you know, di different professions that are related to, to cybersecurity. Um, we have local chapters, you know, in the Puget Sound. We have certainly national organizations and international organizations that are that are professionally affiliated around uh, the disciplines, the industries that we're in. I, you know, and I even point to healthcare as, you know, as a specific industry where that that's true around information security. All of those are great opportunities. You don't have to be involved in all of them, clearly, but, um, you know, pick one, see who's local to you that is also kind of a member in that organization. That should be a natural conversation starter. And then when we get through this pandemic and, uh, you know, we can have a cup of coffee or adult beverage together, then, you know, that's, you know, certainly a, a great icebreaker to kind of, you know, get two people to talk to each other uh, about a common interest. And, you know, and it, and it all starts with being, you know, professionally affiliated, uh, which also indicates that you're growing in the profession, you're developing and sharpening your skills on a daily basis. And, I think that's a that's a really good way to get started on on that networking piece. Another question, how valuable, if at all, has something like LinkedIn been? I have the benefit of this show, and there's people who I'll never probably meet, uh, although one day I hope to, that send a note and just maybe a note of thanks or you know maybe a a, a question related to a show. That's been pretty helpful, but there's also a fair amount of nonsense. Uh, on a platform like that, uh, do you think that there's a a place for effective use for that for the for the upstart security person or maybe the new CISO? Uh, I'll go back to Chuck. Is there? Do you think that's a a usable platform to sort of help to facilitate or no? Um, I'm not a huge LinkedIn user. I tend to use LinkedIn mainly when I'm looking for somebody. So I'm trying to find somebody I know a first name or I know a first and last name. I know a company they worked for happened to run across something they wrote, or I met them briefly, or I'm just saying, hey, I need a good contact at XYZ company. I use LinkedIn a lot for that. I don't use it heavily beyond that. I will occasionally scan through um, comments and things that I see out there, see if something catches my eye. But I'm not a big user of it. And maybe that's just because I'm an old guy. I don't know. But I think there is value in it to some extent. I think we all just have to find the part that's valuable for us. Some people are very, very active on it. They're constantly putting information out there on it. That's just not something I do. I use it more for my own kind of searching capabilities. Sure. And, and it's okay that you're a little older, Chuck. <laughs> we can empathize with that. An earlier point that you made that I think is really important, and I, I'm going to kind of split the topic. The first we approached was just general reaching out to peers and establishing relationships. And we talked a little bit about how that happens socially and how it supports us professionally. 
There's also sort of this in interior career element that's this uh, executive outreach. And I had a, a prior guest say that one of his goals was to get support from individual board members and the work that goes on there, meeting with a board member before a board meeting and trying to have coffee and get their time. And, and his comment was, there's two versions. There's the nice person you have coffee with, and then there's likely the more aggressive person that you're going to be in the meeting with. Establishing relationships with them is important. And so I want to come back to that and start with you, uh, Chuck. Is Are there things that you had to work on over and above that type of action because you are a little introverted? How did that work? So I have not per se developed relationships, strong relationships with our actual board members. They know who I am. I think if I needed to reach out to them for a specific thing, I probably could. At least a couple of them that are on the more technical side. Where I focused my efforts were more with our executives, making sure our executives knew who I was, um, what the role I play is, and when I bring things to them, helping them to understand that it's important um, and that I'm not wasting their time. So it's really developing those relationships. And, and it, that kind of was a, a slower process to get started. Uh, and I think we're going to talk a little bit kind of how security got on the roadmap at Packhart later on. But one of the things that I did put in place, and it took me a while to get to the point where I felt like our program was ready and our executives was ready. And that was what I would call my, my risk council. And it has about well, five of our top executives in the company and then a handful of others that represent different divisions. And I brought them together initially to say, hey, look, I need you guys to be sort of the sounding board around security, to understand what's going on and to help me with prioritizing where we spend our security dollars to best um, meet the company needs. Really more from a business perspective per se than a pure security perspective, thinking of them as the business people. And we did our very first one of those and I did the first one by running them through an actual kind of like a tabletop breach exercise, just to help them kind of like Sean said, understand the world that we live in when these things happen and that they have a role to play when those things happen. So it sort of kind of pulled them in at first. And now I bring things to them around various topics of risk, sometimes not even specifically security related, like GDPR when it came out, bringing it to them to say, look, people are coming to my security team saying, is it okay if we do this? I'm going to help them put controls in place, but I shouldn't be the one validating whether we're okay to, to treat date, this private data in a particular way. So it's helping them understand those issues, bringing them together. And, and that really was kind of the gelling point for the security program to tie IT, security, and our executive teams together. Perfect. Can you share with us, you, you brought together a handful of executives. Uh, what are the approximate titles of those individuals? And, and why was it that mix? So who, who sits on that? And how did you come up with this, with the, these different individuals? Yeah. So we have what's called our operating committee, which is like about the top 15 or so executives in the company, whether it's a president, a CFO, CEO, CIO, et cetera, um, controller. Uh, so I looked at it and said, okay, who are some of the key people? So our president CFO was one of the people. He also happened to be the head of our DOF organization for a period of time. So he brought a European view to things. I had somebody who was on one of the operational sides. I had somebody from a sales perspective who dealt 
with a bunch of our dealerships so they could kind of bring a dealer's point of view. And I had legal, I had HR, I had our controllers, I had our internal audit represented, I had IT represented. So just, uh, and legal, definitely, if I didn't say that. So a mixture of people that I felt could give me a good view kind of of PACAR as a whole and brought different viewpoints to the table. So it's great. You know, certain discussions we have are going to be more focused on somebody from an HR or privacy or legal perspective, where others are going to be more operationally bound. Hey, we'd like to do this, but we're concerned about maybe how that might impact operational capabilities. Or we want to do this, but it's going to affect what our dealers see when they go to our portal and come in. It's going to put extra steps in there. How do you think they're going to react to that? Right. That's the organization we got together. I think that's per. I want to come back to that. I want to talk specifically about the tabletop. But before I do that, I'd like to go to uh, Sean and, and pick on him a little bit and ask his opinion of if you had to start a risk council from scratch for the listener who maybe hasn't done that yet, and there's many, or might need to do that and hasn't, how do you socialize an invite? How, do you, what's, how does the email read? How does the phone call go? Sean, maybe even happy to play EVP of making money if you, we want to kind of role play that way or... Or if we want to talk about, uh, you know, what, how would you socialize that and, and what kind of language, you know, where do you start on that? That's, that's kind of a daunting thing for a lot of folks. What's your recommendation there? In order to have fun with this a little bit, I, I will kind of, you know, kind of frame it up as, you know, a series of questions that I probably would ask you as the EVP of making money. Making money. That's right. Get it right. <laughs> and making, and making money. <laughs> obviously, uh, maybe not obviously, but depending on what industry you're in, there, there's probably some regulatory or compliance-based reason to have an interdisciplinary team that focuses on risk at the enterprise level that includes cybersecurity, operational risk, financial risk, you know, and et cetera and so forth. So let's skip past that and go into the kind of the role-playing. I, I would probably ask you a series of questions based on what is important to you in your line of business in order to gain your curiosity and interest in the process because you know eventually I'm going to give you a charter you know eventually I'm going to give you what the standard agenda items might be and what you can expect uh, to experience as as part of the group I want to kind of catch your interest initially in the in that initial email or first conversation so a couple of you know questions like you know are you are you concerned about how likely it is we will lose four to six percent of our membership in the event there's a cybersecurity um, event. Are you concerned with the idea that our net promoter score will probably drop by 10 to 15% if we have um, a reportable data breach? Does it interest you to know that cybersecurity in a digital transformation organization uh, has been shown to have a, a competitive advantage effect on uh, market adoption? Yeah, and in some cases, I'm kind of making a little bit of that up because you know I don't I don't know if that's the exact phraseology that anybody would would re- really use depending on what industry you're in. But it it, it does it, it comes down to you know knowing your audience and if you're you know having in that introductory kind of conversation about wanting to get somebody who's certainly their time is precious. They're if they're going to commit to this, they're probably not only are they going to commit to it, but they're going to be very engaged, and so you're going to get a lot of input. What is going to bring them to the table? Uh, so does, does that kind of uh, pique your interest as EVP of making money? <laughs> yeah, I think that, that in that example, it's helping people share 
their perspective of what they think their worst day is, what risks they think could happen, right? And what, or maybe even some that they're maybe not completely aware of. There's, I think sharing that and helping facilitate that a little bit is is interesting. And very much outside of the formal risk portions of the organization to include cybersecurity, I would submit that not not many business leaders really do fully understand the risks that are that are undertaken. They they they're aware of them, right? They're conversant of them. Understand the popular trade literature that puts all the statistics out, you know. But much like Tyson said, you everybody has a plan until you get that first punch in the in the nose, right? And uh, I, you know, I think until you have experienced what a cybersecurity event looks like, feels like what the after effects are to the organization, I would, I would suggest that uh, there's a lot of underestimation of what risk really looks like. So it's good to have leadership on a team, like a risk, you know, a risk council to, you know, have it upfront and in your face of what, what the organization is facing on a daily basis or even strategically that, uh, that keeps that ever present. I think that there's a massive misunderstanding and, the concept is is underrepresented, uh, and the simplest way that I've explained it to some that were sort of ignorant to that is just look. If I were to add twenty five percent to each workday of yours, and it's my time, I'm going to irritate you. I'm going to I'm going to add twenty five percent of work to your day to your workday, and I'm going to dictate what happens in that window of time. Meaning you don't get to dictate it; someone else is from the outside. Someone's telling you. And by the way, you're going to have to represent a topic that you know very little about. So an executive, because you're good at stuff, but you're going to have to learn something that you're not good at because you've never had to practice it. And that's the reality. And by the way, at best, this goes on for six months, sometimes years, depending on how close you are to the um, the blast, as they say. Mm-hmm. And it, that's very, very real. You, I know you've experienced it and many others have as well. So no, I think that, that so now I want to go back if I can. Tell us about this tabletop that was done and, and how did you bring people into it? What was covered and was there any surprises from these newly initiated folks, uh, Chuck, to this was probably their first tabletop. So how did that, how did that feel when it was done? Yeah, it was, uh, it was interesting event. We, you know, I thought we'd get to it relatively quickly. We took every minute plus that we had allocated for it, brought in a third party to kind of run it so I could just be a participant in it. As much as it was a tabletop, it really just became sort of an educational session. It was interesting. And, you know, we started out with, hey, let's, let's, we're going to do a, a, a breach with data loss. Started asking some questions and you know, people were like, well, wait, 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 what's the data? Well, it could be IP, it could be finance, whatever. Blah, blah. No, 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 no. We need to know what's the data. So I said, okay, let's make it uh, intellectual property. Well, you know, and some of this I'm making up just to emphasize, but you know, that's not really the most important thing for us. Okay, well, it's it's financial pre-release of earnings. Well, you know, if we were hacked and that happened, that's really not on us. So was, I said, okay, so what would be, what do you care about? What's really important to you? And they kind of thought for a little bit and they said, you know, information about our dealers or personal information about our employees, that that would be really bad if that had gotten me. I said, great, that's what it was, you know, and, and we went on. And But those were the types of questions that kept coming up. They would kind of dig through to get specifics and tell it was something that was really they could latch onto. So we sort of use that 
to drive the tabletop down the path that they wanted it to go. And then we talked about response. We talked about things like, would we pay ransom or not? Um, And had those discussions up front. So we could sort of set the stage for later on down the road to have a plan of attack when this happens. And out of that now, we do have some canned messages that we would use to communicate should a breach happen externally. And I think before they just all assumed that somebody would do it. Well, now we have clarity on who's going to do it. We have plans in place for how that would happen. We continued this on later and we did an actual much more of a real breach at a um, data center all set up for simulated breach attacks. And we actually put uh, about 10 of these people into the seats of analysts and they played a role as they were led through a breach with all these different side things coming in, people trapped in elevators and LinkedIn or whatever, blowing up about news about it, false reports, all this stuff. And they had to work through this practice. And we spent about six hours um, confined in a room going through that where they actually had hands-on keyboards working through it. So we've kind of continued to elevate that experience. We've actually taken some of our dealers through that experience as well to educate and train. And boy, do they learn a lot coming out of it. I think we had about 20 items on a checklist coming out of that first one saying, these are things we need to go back and work on. And they weren't all things for for me and my team. They were things for them as business owners to go work on. You know, it's interesting. If you had to go into a dealership and say to the F&I man or woman that, that you've got to go in and run everything on paper for 10 days, you think about how, whether it's all the things that, that if effectively you're saying you can't use your computing devices. You got to go back to to paper in order to operate. It'd be curious to know how many organizations could run it manually with paper and or just would have to sh- just close up. That's the risk discussion. I can tell you most have to close up. If they are at a point where their computing systems are down, they pretty much shut the doors and get everything cleaned up and back so they can get back in business. Um, we've had different dealerships that have been offline for you know five, six, seven days completely due to ransomware and things. Yeah, that's that's interesting. I'd be curious, is there anything from a technical or a behavioral perspective that just in general that you've seen, maybe not even related to your current employer, but just as, as being kind of plugged in, anything that changes? So they're offline for a week and how long does that enthusiasm for security last? And what are the typical changes you see or, or not see? I think the biggest thing is that, you know, when it happens, there's, oh my gosh, how could this happen? What were you not doing? What, you, you know, why did you let this happen? And, and et cetera, et cetera. And the better going back to relationships, if you've had those relationships with your executives, it's a lot easier to talk through that because you've had those conversations about, hey, it really doesn't matter what we do. If somebody wants to break in, they'll find a way in, but then it becomes how quickly can we detect, respond, and get back to normal. If you haven't had it, then there, there's this assumption, I believe, by a lot of our executives that, that security is great and you're not going to ever let anybody break in. And if you do, you really screwed up. So again, I go back to those relationships and establishing those and helping them understand why bad things can still happen and what the focus needs to be on, which is get back to normal as quickly as possible. So. Kind of to your question, I think when these events happen, it it goes different directions depending on where you're at in those relationships. If you have that good relationship, then it goes down more of, okay, let's figure this out and let's get back to normal operations. 
if it, you haven't had those relationships, you're answering a lot of questions that you should have been talking about months ago. Right. And that's a waste of your time to get back to normal operations. Sean, I want to go to you. You told me that one of the things that was sort of a pet peeve and sort of something that's wrong, I think, with our industry is that many people believe, and, and actually Chuck was just saying this and not so many words, is that there's sort of this idea that it's only one person's fault when a failure happens, uh, when a breach happens. And we know that that's not the case, but, but you made a point to bring that up. And I'm guessing it was at least partially colored by some of the past you've had to do in breach response. Enlighten us on, on your perspective there. How did, we, how did many organizations get to the point where they think, hey, you had a failure and it's the CISO's fault, right? Pick, pick that idea up and run with it, please. Uh, sure. Well, you know, it, in a lot of instances it's, instances, it's like that scene in Casablanca where the detective is sitting there um, reading the riot act and closing down the, the gambling and in the establishment. And he says, you know, I'm surprised to find out there's gambling in this establishment. And somebody comes up behind him and, and hands him money and says, here's your winnings, sir. And, uh, you know, he puts, he puts the winnings in his pocket and, and kind of acts like nothing happened. It's the, it's a metaphor for, um, or an analogy, I'm not sure, but it's uh, kind of what you see in the industry with, you know, systematic issues that have, you know, been longstanding issues. And, and it kind of ties into this discussion of having these, you know, interdisciplinary risk councils where, the, you know, if the, in the best scenarios, the CISO, the security team, they've been communicating there's vulnerabilities or, you know, patch management cycles aren't where they need to be or, We've got, you know, legacy systems or, or we're not investing in certain things. Th these are all, you know, kind of well-known within the organization. And then something happens and there's a breach or there's a cyber event of some sort. And, you know, there's this rush to how did this happen? You know, what, how, how, did, how could this possibly happen? And, and, and oftentimes the, the CISO or the lead, you know, information security person um, is, you know, made to be held accountable for that. And, and there might be there might there might be some times where that's you know completely appropriate. That's always true, but but a lot more times than not, I think we can all agree that these are when there's an event like this, uh, they're they're not only systematic, but they're also something that the organization uh, you know has known and in in many ways uh, has accepted as a risk or a series of risks. And I do think that over the last couple of years, as there's been more and more of these these events. The uh, the rush to remove CISOs from positions or you know blame any one certain person uh, within the organization has has kind of trailed off a little bit maybe you know maybe it's just getting drowned out in terms of the the, the frequency of these events and and when they're um, announced but I do remember that you know going back three to four years ago it was you know just very common for you know action one is a breach action two is a new CISO you know, brought into the organization. Action three is um, kind of this PR recovery uh, you know, throughout the, the popular media or with shareholders or stockholders or what have you. And I'll, and I'll kind of stop by kind of saying, going back a few years, it, it is true that there, are, there, there were a lot of people in senior information security positions that more or less, you know, became a CISO uh, by virtue of just almost organizational uh, inertia. You know, you just rose to a level coming out of IT or coming out of some other position within the organization and, and poof, you know, you are the senior most information security person in the organization. And 
maybe there wasn't um, any formal education that was available when you were coming up or, you know, maybe you didn't, um, you know, buy into the certification path. But we we, ha we have seen many uh, CISOs that when you when you looked into their background, um, they didn't come out of a from a, a from a security kind of upbringing, if you will. And the good news is that is that is changing as cybersecurity is becoming truly a profession, a specialized profession. Um, and many argue that it's outside of information technology, which is a good thing too. Um, is you know that 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 profession that 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 discipline, the domain expertise, is you know being cultivated. So we you know it's really important that we invest in the folks that are coming up uh, through through STEM education, through you know formal education around cybersecurity, um, in in investing in folks. Um, that are coming up through that path, and I think when they when they are coming into CISO positions, they are uh, they're better prepared. Uh, they're certainly um, better seasoned, even from the start. And so, because so many of us had to really just get the battle scars and uh, you know um, develop our our capabilities just through um, you know, just hard work and and I'm not I'm sorry I don't mean I don't mean to say it like that because formal education is hard work too. But but just coming up and and really. Just getting battle scars, you know, just, you know, learning through experience. And there's a lot of paths that weren't, that weren't, uh, that weren't real or they weren't there, you know, five, six years ago. Like I, like I mentioned, when I came up in through the Air Force, you know, putting cybersecurity into medic, commercial medical devices like, you know, telemetry units and uh, teleradiology and, and ultrasounds and things like that, it was that by and large, that was unheard of. And, um, you know, look where we are now with not only medical devices and in how cybersecurity has become such a big, uh, big part of the safety and security, patient safety and patient security. But, um, but in almost every critical infrastructure, every critical infrastructure industry, uh, where cybersecurity plays just such a, a direct role in, um, you know, safety, security, privacy, it's just uh, it's a it's a profession that uh, we really have to grow and develop and and uh, attend to that way. Yeah, it's it's certainly it, I think it's still largely immature, and that's my opinion. Maybe not a popular one, but it's getting more mature. We still lack often a what I'll call a global definition of good. Many leaders I speak with uh, will quietly tell you that they are still unsure of how good their program is or isn't. Uh, so there's some anxiety around that. We do have maturity scores. I, I think those are valuable. I have issue with many of them though, because you can be mature and not effective. Those are two very different things. Sometimes crisis and preparing through that is in experiencing it is the only real way to be effective, to know. I want to go back. I've got so many more questions I have for each of you. Can I just build upon that just for just a quick second? Because I, I think you hit on a great point. And, you know, are, it's more of a question than a statement, but, are, you know, are we ever going to be at a point or are we at a point now? If you have a cybersecurity event, a data, a data breach, is it possible that you actually do have a good program and, a, and a, a solid maturity level? You know, your risk management framework is in place and, you know, you're doing all the right things. I, I think I think the answer is I think the answer is yes, and if it's not yes today, it should be yes at some point. I I just think that the evidence is 
contrary to that because I don't know that anybody gets you know goes through a data breach or goes through an, an event like that and doesn't come out on the other end with some kind of fine and penalty from regulators or some kind of a class action lawsuit that they have to face and fight against. Is there a time and place in the, in the in our future there's an evaluation, you know, external evaluation that says, you know what, they were doing everything they could do. This is sort of like, you know, the adversary you know, in, in in the real world, if you know a nation state attacks us, comes over the fence and and invades our house, you're not going to be arrested for the breach. In, in cybersecurity, if you are the organization and the bad guys get in, that you're, you're, there's fault that's going to be found in in what you were doing. And and I I would just submit that it, it is a kind of an aspirational thing. Um, when do we get to the point where uh, you can say that the program was was good enough you did all the due diligence and the adversaries at fault yeah i want to kind of add on that it's something that i'm i'm stealing from a good friend who shared this with me and it's you know in today's world when there is a cyber attack it's to Sean's point it's like oh my gosh how how come you didn't do this and how could you have let that happen and you know why didn't you have these controls in your program or whatever well the bad guys you know if if they're once if they're right once, they can get in. We have to be right 100% of the time. But now flip that around to the physical world. If there's a bank robbery and there was an armored guard and there were alarms and police responded, but somebody gets shot, they don't look at the bank and say, how could you have had such poor security? They look at the robber and say, oh my gosh, that person's a bad person and, and they should be arrested and blah, blah, blah. We're, we're, from a cybersecurity perspective, it, it's just flipped. It's looked at that company and saying that company didn't do everything they should have done. We're just not there yet. But I think over time, maybe that mentality can shift, like you said, Sean, where they said, look, they were doing everything they could truthfully. And the guys still got in. And I don't know if it resonates. No, it, re- it resonates because it, 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 I just, every time I read a story about somebody you know getting a ransomware attack or something like that it's you know it's always uh you know the organization did something wrong i mean there's always a way to find fault does that mean there's always something wrong or there's always there's always a vulnerability actually probably it does cuz i think anybody that's in this business realizes that you know you can't patch every system all the time 100% and i guess that's a controversial statement i guess somebody'll say i'm wrong about that well, you're always one click away, right? There's always, you know, it's it's interesting. I could debate this and would enjoy the conversation. I could talk about this for hours. We're in a situation where you mentioned patching, and in order to have good patching, you have to have excellent asset management. Mm-hmm. Typically, the CISO doesn't own asset management. There's assets to the corporation, whether it's money, buildings, people, devices, whatever it is. There's assets on a list on a ledger. And it's amazing how many organizations don't have an asset list. They don't have a good list. They don't don't know what they own. Now, if you were going to go to many businesses and say, do you own 100 cars or 90 cars? And if there's 10 cars missing, someone's going to get yelled at. That's going to be whoever sort of owns that asset, whatever department or division. Are they stolen? Are they lost? What's their maintenance record? Are they upkept? Are they rusty? Are they well running? Whatever. We'll throw that over into our world. It's amazing how much pain the CISO is forced to own. Because if you don't have an asset list and you and you're not maintaining the assets and they're not configured well and they're not getting patched well, and maybe you just own the patching, or maybe someone else owns that, but you own the scanning. 
you can see where this falls apart. And back to the earlier statement, Sean, you made, where is, can you have a breach and will people feel like, hey, you still had a good security program? And it is my mission, and it was and still is, to build the best security capabilities I could. In fact, I went on record and saying my prior role, we're going to have the greatest analytics, security analytics team in healthcare information security, period. Put my name on it. Fire me if we don't get it. I'll bring in outside organizations to evaluate us. We're going to drill. It is our mission. Everyone in this room knows that's what it is. However, I'm going to own that, but I want everyone else then to track the adoption of it. And so I had a conversation once with the number two person in the company asked, are we secure? And um, where, where do we need to improve? And I said, well, we don't integrate well. We don't buy companies well. We don't get rid of old tech well. And, we don't, and we've got too many points of presence, too many data centers. I said, all of those things make my job infinitely more difficult. So are we secure? Do we have great capabilities? Well, we've got, we've got, the answer is we have got great capabilities, but are we secure? Until we begin working on those things, we're in trouble. The other thing is, is this idea of the relationship of a foreign government versus an independent entity and, and what that means. So we're expected, Sean, Chuck, all of us, where we have capabilities that align with nation state capabilities. You know, we had a situation recently, many uh, organizations were popped via what I'll call third-party software. And the speculation is, at least what was shared publicly, there was probably 10,000 engineers working on that exploitation framework, that problem set as it's known. So that's a, that's a, a hell of a, a thing to think about. Those are almost impossible odds. So I want to turn it back over to you guys, uh, maybe starting with Chuck. I mean, I just threw a lot of nonsense against the wall. How does that feel? What's, what do you think on that? I think you're spot on. Everybody's going to look at their industry, right? Healthcare, financial, they're going to be more regulated, more monitored, and they're going to probably spend more on security than, say, manufacturing is. So we're going to look at the risks that are associated with our industry. We're going to make sort of a what is considered acceptable risk. And we do that by, to some extent, our pocketbook. What are we willing to spend to secure? What are we willing to spend to remove technical debt? What are we willing to spend to have a good asset inventory system? All those things help us establish kind of what is that. Maybe it's unspoken, but it's spoken by the pocketbook, acceptable risk to our company. And then my job is to help them understand kind of what that risk is, what it would cost to mitigate those risks and create that budget and then to implement. If I do that, if I bring those things forward, if I feel that I have properly informed our executives that they really do understand the risk and they're willing to sign up for whatever that level of risk is that we're leaving somewhat unmitigated or somewhat maybe maybe partially mitigated but unremediated, then I can sleep good at night knowing that that I am protecting the company to the best level I can and to the acceptable risk that our executives are aware of. Again, knowing that they truly understand those risks. Now, stuff will still happen. Some of it will happen because we didn't patch those systems and they'll come and talk to me about it. And then we'll have a conversation about, you know, we talked through this and this was a, you know, $10 million investment to patch those systems. And the idea was, well, they're actually working pretty well. And we think the risk and the probability, you know, is, or the probability and the impact isn't that high. Let's, 
let's only do this level of protection on them. We've had that conversation. I have to remind them about it. And yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, okay. But what do we do now? How do we patch them? What do we do? And then we go on and we move forward from there. If I haven't, again, if I haven't had those relationships, if I haven't had those conversations, then that's shame on me for not letting them be part of that risk decision. Shauna, I want to go to you on this. And we're, we're coming a little close on time, but you related to what Chuck just said in an earlier conversation, you gave advice on something that I, that I see all the time. And I want you to explain why to never do this. You noted you should never sugarcoat what's going on in the org, but I see it happen intentionally and sometimes unintentionally. Unintentionally meaning you write up a risk and it goes up the chain and, and you're in the service and you've probably seen it even today. You write a story, you put it in, you write, there's an issue. And as it goes up the chain, it gets tweaked, it gets changed, it gets shorter, it gets better looking, it's not as nasty. Um, or you intentionally do it because, yeah, let's kick the can down the road. So, why do we have that happen? Why do security people do it? Or why do security people let others do it to them? Yeah. What's the, and, and what does that do to all of what Chuck was just talking about? Yeah. Boy, I, I tell you what, there's, um, there's like four or five just statements running around, running around in my head right now. And I, and I'll just, I'll just say them as, as they come to me because you, you've really touched kind of a really interesting kind of topic for me. One is um, the unemployment rate in cybersecurity is negative. Keep that in mind. I don't know why CISOs or even people in the security business would would embark in a in a role where they they are kind of encouraged to sugarcoat or rose color glasses is the phrase everybody uses, right? You know, you know, it's you're not you're not doing the organization any justice if you're if you're constantly trying to spin the spin the news so that it sounds better going up and you know because you're not protecting your job. Um, in fact, you're, you know, like go, go back to that idea of the scapegoat being the CIS. If something goes wrong, and oh, by the way, you, you also didn't give the, the objective real data, like the real story, you know, all the warts on the, on the frog or the toad. If you didn't do that, then, you know, you, you probably, you know, you actually deserve to lose your job. Try, don't try to hold on to your job, acquiescing to, you know, to the management of the organization, be objective be fair, be reasonable, be right, but always communicate the message, you know, as, as you see it. The other thing that was running through my mind, you said that is if I had advice to give to somebody coming up and I, you know, and I said, what, what one kind of, what, what one kind of talent or skill is so, so important in, in your development? It is um, the ability to exude confidence that your, your, your role within that organization is to give management and the board the confidence that you're doing all you can do on behalf of the organization to provide that protection, detection, response, recovery. You're not going to be right all the time. You're not, you know, the bad guys, you know, they're, that's why it's called an advanced persistent threat. Um, they're probably, you know, going to win sometimes. You're going to do everything you can, including telling them the, the straight, skinny, and objective kind of risk measured data and not the sky is falling and, you know, anecdotes and, you know, and not making it out to be worse than what it is, but, but just really being clear and concise and, and just, you know, exuding that confidence. So develop that skill to be able to, to give confidence to people in the organizations that have to make a lot of different decisions for a lot of different reasons. 
They don't want to panic, and you shouldn't be panicked, but they also should be able to really measure that risk and make the right decision. So um, I, I, I have seen, I have people that I know within the, in the industry that have, you know, been in those, those pressure situations where it's, you know, hey, we need to really balance security against all these other things, which is almost a dog. Sometimes it's, sometimes it's a dog whistle for, hey, we need to subordinate security here. You know, let's underplay the, the risk here. You know, is this really that big of a deal? You know, it's, you know, what is really the likelihood? I think it was funny when, when Chuck was going through his discussion about in, in that in that risk review and it's like, well, and it's like, well, that well is, is, <laughs> is another manifestation of, you know, let's balance this here. You know, yeah, you, you know, you can throw the fancy numbers at me and, you know, tell me the sky is falling. But, you know, what's the real likelihood that, you know, somebody's going to get through or whatever? And, and honestly, nine times out of 10, the answer is it's not that bad until it's that bad. Right, right. And then it's, then it's worse than you can imagine. So I, I won't overplay that, but I also won't sugarcoat it and make it sound like, oh, it's not a big deal. You know, we'll get to it when we get to it. If it's a problem, it's a problem. And the only confidence you're going to exude is that you've got, you, you got, you got eyes on, you got eyes on the target. You have a plan in place. Um, and with the proper support of the organization that you're, you're going to execute on that plan and you're going to continue to, to report on that for the, the leadership. And, and, and that's that. And, it, you know, if you're again, if you're trying to save your job by kind of saying what other people think you should say, or if your message is getting changed and, you know, you're probably the wrong organization and the unemployment rates negative and you'll have a, you'll have another role, you know, before you get your cardboard box filled up and you walk out the door. I completely agree. I think that that your point on confidence is stellar. That is, you know, it, it, but not arrogance, but just the confidence because they're going to expect that leaders should be confident in their mission. And, you know, the, the thing that we're, we're about out of time here, but if that usually I ask, and I'm going to ask Chuck this, um, every show, you know, pursuant to the name of the show, the new CISO, what does being a new CISO mean to you? I think that you know you gave kind of a, a great capstone answer to that, and and confidence is a is a skill and as a mindset is so important. Um, so I appreciate that, and I I want to turn over to 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 Chuck to 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 close us out here, maybe as a to reshare some of what you've already mentioned, or maybe a new point or idea. You know, Chuck, what is what does being a new CISO mean to you to close us out? I'll be brief, hopefully, but I think the old CISO was the no guy. They were the places where projects went to die because they would just stop it. And that's not who we need to be. We need to be engaged with the business. We need to be the people that help the business understand the risk, help them come up with win-win solutions where we get the security we need, still allow the business to move forward. Because without the business, you don't need security because you'll be shut down, right? <laughs> so you have, to, you have to work with them and come up with ways that they they understand that risk. It's real. You're presenting it real. And then there's a business decision that gets made because in every business decision that gets made, are we going to open this new shop? Are we going to buy this company? Whatever. There's risk, right? And that's all evaluated. And then a business decision is made and you move forward. So helping them to understand that security is aligned with that, right? We're going to bring forward the risks. We're going to help you understand how bad it could get. We're going to help you understand the probability around it so you can make an informed business decision. And I think Sean was so spot on. I like to just say ditto. 
the confidence when you're at the podium and you're talking to your executives, you're talking to your board, you can't be, oh, the sky is falling and, and we're going to, the business is going to shut down if we don't patch this system and, and, and et cetera, et cetera. They'll, they won't listen to you anymore. They won't trust you. They won't feel like you've, you've really got the business's best intent, if you will, in mind. You've got to be the person who can go up there and share the facts, share them as facts because that's what they are. And then help them understand what you're doing about it. Help them get confidence. You might scare them. I mean, one of when in past when I talked to CEOs, they said, "You really scare the crap out of me." I get a sense that you guys have a good handle on this stuff. That's a huge compliment because you're you're informing them. You're not holding back. They get it. Does scare them, but at the same time, you're giving them confidence in the program that they are funding as heading in the right direction. I guess that's how I would close it out. Chuck, thank you so much. Sean, thank you. You both have made my day and, and hopefully that of the listeners as well. This has been great fun. Thank you both. Hey, thank you. That's it for this episode of the new CISO. Thank you for listening. Check out more episodes on exabeam.com forward slash podcast. And remember to rate, review, and subscribe to get brand new episodes first.